the post-millennial progression of coffee is like this amazing. What is that? It's what do you, amazing. What do you mean the post-millennial? Because, because you know, you discover coffee and it, and the, the, uh, the West sort of takes coffee in and then, um, realizes like if you chew on these leaves that you stay up late and you know all you get extra energy and then they find out that if you roast the beans so you can make a tea out of it that's just a white you know like a white coffee or oh, whatever yeah, green tea yeah, yeah 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 and it doesn't taste as good as regular green tea but it's got more caffeine in it but then they figured out if you roast it that there's actually this like deep glory hidden in there. You roast it and grind it and baptize it, you know, then you get this glory. But then <laughs> they they weren't they didn't settle with that. They also discovered that there's you can um you, you can have different ways of taking the grounds out or forcing the grounds through or pushing the water through. And until really they're making these machines that put high pressured hot water and they force it through compacted coffee to get espresso. And it's the, just the essence you do it right. You get just all the sweetness of the coffee and leave all the bitterness, all the tannins aside. And, uh, you know, then you add milk and honey, like the promised land. And it's, it's this progression towards the, the discovering the goodness of creation. It's so funny because there's, all types of things like that in the world. And still we have people who are dispensationalists. <laughs> I just yeah. don't, I don't get it, Jason. I really don't. Yeah. My, my wife and I were sitting on the couches last night and she said, she looked around and she said, how can people possibly believe this place is getting worse? It's like, yeah, the politics are bad right now, but look at my house. It's like a, a king in, in the 1300s would have killed for this place. <laughs> you know what I think about? Um, I think about the uh, I, th- I think about kind of the obesity rate that's here in America. It's like mm-hmm. that's a that's that's a new phenomenon. Uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> I think about that used to be how you showed yourself to be wealthy. <laughs> exactly. The other thing I think about is every time I go and buy a candy or just going to the grocery store. <laughs> And having the, the forest all nurtured together for me. But every time I pick up a Three Musketeers, I'm like, man, what king wouldn't have given half his country yeah. to have a Three Musketeers? Or a you Snickers. Or, or, yeah. No, no, no. A Three Musketeers. A Three Musketeers. <laughs> yeah. A Three Musketeers. I, do you, is, do you peel the outside chocolate off first? I buy and two so I can time. have them two different ways. <laughs> no lie. I like, I save one for, I don't eat them all at the same time. So people can stop tripping, but I do yeah. have like two yeah. different ways. I like to eat them. Sometimes I like to taste yeah. it all together. Other times I just like, yeah. I want that, whatever that thing is in the middle, whatever that the is. Nougat, that, yeah. The like chocolate nougat stuff. Yeah. That's oh, it's caramel. It's magical. It's it magical. Okay. So, uh, what are we talking about today? Oh yes, bro. Um, I don't know how to say this nicely, but Dorothy Sayers messes with my categories. I know, I know. And so when she's you say, amazing, she is amazing. And now she's a Christian, right? Oh yeah. Okay, Very I, strong I thought Christian. so. I thought so, but it, it, there's there was um. Well, I guess the, the probably the place to start was we talked. What was it last week or yes? Well, yeah, last week we were trying to figure out. I can't remember how we got to even the topic of feminism, but something happened. And you were like, "We got to talk about feminism." Yeah, yeah. 
And I was like, okay. I mean, everybody's kind of already understands the fruit of feminism, at least I think. But then when I went back and started reading Dorothy Sayers, I start realizing that we have a bigger problem. Um, right, it's a meta, we got a metaphysical, we got a metaphysical problem, and, and we, we're trying to solve it with we're, we're trying to solve it uh, without addressing the metaphysical issues with cheap tropes and conservative mm-hmm. talking points that we think are going to give us a win over against our opponent, and they just one up us, and we kind and so we just all have kind of drifted away from the conversation, even and. What is it? The essay was um, Are Women Are human? Women Human? Yeah. That's what it was. So I was, so I, my first take on thinking through this was like, okay, I know the answer to this. And she stopped me in my tracks so many times that I had to go back and rethink. Man, we don't have a, we're not, we're not thinking, we're not thinking about women well, which, right. as I start looking at the progress through this, she ends her uh, her first essay, "What What Are, are Women Human?" with almost a warning. Was this nineteen thirty eight, thirty nine? I think something like that. Somewhere around that might be a little bit earlier than that because it started as a public address and then it was printed. So I think the public address was like mid early thirties, and then it, it ended up being published in the late thirties. Because she was talking to journalists, ultimately, wasn't she? I think it was. And mm-hmm. the way she ends it, though, was. Almost right smack. She almost was prophetic in saying, like, if this continues to go on, basically, you're going to be where we're at now. And I want to say that because I want to read that quote later. But why is it that right now, particularly in our conversation, we've been talking about metaphysics. Um, We've been talking about trying to, you know, we've been going through this progression of identity uh, in our conversation. And, And a lot of this, again, is I'm trying to develop a historical understanding and backdrop of how we got to where we are. And talking identity, I think a lot of people kind of got like, man, what do you do with it? Some people were listening to our conversation on identity and was like, what are you guys going to do with it? How do you harmonize this stuff? And it's like, it's kind of, it's the answer is, is a lot simpler than what people want to believe it is. And, um, but it, it, I think that the real problem is that we're lacking faith to believe it is that easy. Right? Right. Yeah. I, or, I, I, well, I think that it, that it's done by, something other than works right right <laughs> but then it can be done by faith and not by works i think that's what that 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 that's where we end up um we want some other marker besides faith to be the way that we keep covenant and, and so we're always looking for something besides faith place how we please god um and discover the truth right um and yeah, unfortunately, I mean, not unfortunately, fortunately, God didn't depend, didn't set it on our works. He set it on faith. The other thing, though, is that that the, the question that is missed in all of this, Dorothy Sayers gets it in her article, What Are Women, which is. Uh, are women human? Are women human? Are women yeah. human? Um, the, the question I think, though, that's that's stumbling us up even as we're talking about critical race theories, we're talking about identity with other people's tribes and nations is, are they human? Right? Like that's the real question. Are they human? And then if they are, then the question before that is what is a human? Right. (laughs) You know, and that's what she, that's what Sayers does so well is she gets that, that it's a metaphysical 
that is a metaphysical question that is that we're asking when it comes to questions of what place does a woman have in society or how should we treat women? How do, how should we treat? And, and I like the way she particularizes how should she doesn't want to say, how do we treat women as a class or women? Like, how do I treat no. this woman? Right. This right. woman that's right here. Um, is, well, because she's and, not a Gnostic. That solves. Yeah, exactly. But that's what solves a lot of our problems is the, we, we want to talk in terms of abstract categories and she's like, but why? Why would we? Is there a reason to do that? Well, not just. Why, not, how do we, how do we? Let's talk about a, a woman. Like instead of an abstract category of women as a as a class, let's talk about a woman. Well, is this woman human? That's that's. But that's yeah. the thing too. I think not just. Um, I think you uh, <coughs> ain't I a woman? That's another one. You know. I think, but right, she, yeah. she she's just not getting abstract. She's just getting it general. Like we like to talk in general, sweeping comments constantly when it re, as it re, pertains to um, metaphysics. I want to say something that I want you. You were giving me a history of kind of the journey of feminism, and yeah. Do you want a quick overview on the history? I of do, I do, because I, I made okay. you stop. I made you stop because I was like, wait, 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 don't, don't spill this all right now on the phone. I'm not recording nothing. I need to record this so I can go back and listen to it again. But, but, yeah. but one of the things I want to preface it with is that as I begin, well, I'll let you, I'll let you start the journey of feminism, and then I'll say what yeah. I want to say. And I think, I think what's always interesting with with histories of movements. So first off, we have to realize that most of our, most of the history that we've been taught is leaving stuff out, yeah. leaving important parts out or is because Marxism, um, Marxism sees Marxism and postmodernism as well. But Marxism, I think is the culprit here sees the telling of the story of history as a power play. Yes. Right. And so you're yes. always telling the story of history as a power play. And so you can't just be honest and straightforward and be like, here's the benefits. Here's the deficits. Here's the good stuff. Here's the bad stuff. You're always creating heroes and villains that tell you that are, that are trying to convince people in the present to do what it is you want them to do politically. Right. That's a Marxist view of the story storytelling of history right now the weaponizing is what you mean the weapon yeah exactly the weaponizing of history and so um and the problem is we have uh, conservatives used to resist that and say no that's not how you tell history you tell the truth and then you learn from the history right the history when you tell it truly actually is how you develop a moral under uh, an an a it's how you develop your conscience but it's how a society as a whole develops a corporate conscience right is through the telling of history by telling the truth in history you develop that moral conscience so it's it's not a weapon used to against your enemies um it's a weapon used against evil that is inherently going to be present in the in society right so the telling of history is a weapon, but it's not a weapon against your political enemies. It's a weapon against the evils of humankind. You know, the other thing too, I think we, we part of the other side, Marxism and like other things like that is they understand how powerful history is too. So, uh, what you see in, um, 
certain rulings in Obergefell, certain rulings with uh, uh, everybody sees the homosexual marriage there inside of Obergefell. Everybody sees Roe v. Wade. They see the abortion Roe v. Wade. What they're not seeing is a retelling of the type of history that creates a certain type of person, right? So those things are doing away with a certain type of natural law historical yeah. storytelling said you have this handed down from your fathers from their fathers from their fathers and this is the progression of things and because of the way that humanity has developed this is where you are in the story right and this is who right. you are in the story and so the way that they want to tell stories is to remove not just what you are but also who you are and then what you're supposed to, like you were just saying like that, that's the whole purpose of the way they tell stories and so hist- or tell history which is what we see right. in eighteen in the 1619 movement. Yeah, yeah. And it, and um and it happens in so I mean if you want your whole if you want your whole if you want to never trust uh another media figure again, then there's this great book called Blacklisted by History. <laughs> um <laughs> that <laughs> will Dang it, I didn't need any more books. <laughs> Um, Stanton, I believe, is the author, and um, it is—it's over on my shelf. I could go look, but it is—it's um, about Joe McCarthy. It, and you basically realize that it that the USSR sent spies infiltrated the American government all the way up to even like speechwriters for the president. Um, and what the <laughs> and there's proof, right? Because now the USSR has fallen, and so all of the all of their spy material is available, and so you can actually prove who was and where the spies were, and right. So is that Stanton? Um, you said um, Stanton. Yeah, Stanton. Stanton Blacklisted Evans. by history. This oh one? yeah, Stanton. That's right. Yeah, that's the one. The one right there on the top. Okay. So. Um, Stanton is his first name, so Evans is his last name, and uh, and all of a sudden you realize what else have I been lied to about? Oh man, in oh. history, right? In, and so then you you and what it should encourage you to do is just read original sources, right? Um, at least that's that's what it encouraged me to do. All of a sudden I'm like I gotta go read some original sources on things and and quit thinking oh I can trust whatever it was that I was told. You know, um, we've got the the availability of sources unlike any generation has ever had, right? And so we, uh, if if we can read and we've got access to a library, then we can go in and learn all sorts of stuff and and just see how often we've been uh, history has been weaponized against Western civilization. Mm. Recently, right? Um, but the history of feminism, I think, is in a, another example of it. What's so interesting is, um, if you know, uh, Wollstonecraft, who wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women, um, she was vindicating the rights of women over against Jean Jacques Rousseau, right? That was so the Enlightenment, um, and really kind of that the beginnings of the turn towards uh, Romanticism and the Enlightenment, what, uh, the the enlightenment was very anti women or not not necessarily anti women um 
it was, it, but it, it had a very low view of women, I think is a better way to put it, right? It was very chauvinistic. It was very, it, um, it, it thought men were better, tougher, stronger, more reasonable. Um, and that, uh, that women were, um, necessary for the pro- propagation of the species, but shouldn't get an education, shouldn't be, uh, because their brains would overheat, they would say, you know, <laughs> that uh, they, they had, they shouldn't be allowed to vote, they shouldn't be allowed to be a part of the, the intellectual political aspects of society, they shouldn't be allowed to own property anymore. Um, and so you have this move uh, against, or this, this move to uh, to take women and um, they're the weaker, uh, the the lesser sex, weaker not just in not in just a physical sense, but in all the senses. So, and Jason, so, so, so yeah. is that because the what's going on in the Enlightenment is the issue of authority, and so they're saying, well, who has authority? Well, it can't be women; they're not the head, so therefore they don't have any authority. Well, the, the the understanding of authority is shifting away from authorities exist in offices uh, to, to authorities exists as power, right? So uh, you've got that Machiavellian understanding that authority has to do with power. Um, the, the ability to force others to do your will is authority. Women are, aren't as strong, right? I, I can go out and beat a woman up on the street and force her to do what I should, what I want her to do. Therefore she is, um, she can't hold authority because authority is summed up as the ability to force others to do what you want them to do. Whereas the older Christian conception is that authority is an office granted by God and that submission is a gift given to the authority is not something that is pulled out of the, uh, the subject. Right. So, mm. um, so, and, and what, what this does is you got, you have, Folks, you know, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he's just really misogynistic. Um, he does not like women. Uh, he is, um, he's infamous, you know, for his, the visiting of prostitutes and keeping, he finds a woman that he considers to be uh, very uh, un, unlikable and unreasonable. And then he keep, he sort of drags her around with him and, uh, he he is very misogynistic and his writings prove it out right and so what's interesting is how often you you read folks on the left and they're like well you got to understand rousseau in his context which they would never do for a conservative right you know, you have calvin you, for instance Cal- calvin or like this person had he he wasn't an abolitionist or he owned slaves and right. you got to understand yeah. him in his context jefferson you got to understand him in his context no we will not rousseau though he's misogynistic hates women every time he gets a woman pregnant he drops the baby off at the orphanage, right? He refuses to raise any of his own children because his, his life goals are too important to, to be uh, wasted raising children. You know, he is a terrible, terrible human being. And, but, but all you, you can find all of these academic articles trying to put him in, put him into his historical context so that you can, yeah. The times were different then. (laughs) They were different. And so you want to put him into his historical context. Right. And then show that he's a very bad 
bad man. I've been teaching my children time they hear his name to spit on the ground since they were little, right? <laughs> Jean-Jacques Rousseau is terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you've got, um, so, but the, but uh, when Wollstonecraft wrote a vindication of the rights of women, she's really writing against the enlightenment understanding of women um, that is currently taking away things that, in a common law tradition, they have had, right? They, they've they had right, the right to own property. Um, they've had uh, the, there were, so voting, mass voting was really entering the West just recently, but it was never based on gender originally. It, um, it was based on property ownership. Well, women could own property, and so they could, where they, where they owned the property, they voted. Right? The women could, um, be the head of a household. And so where they were the head of a household, if it was head of household voting, the woman was the one that did the voting. Uh, it wasn't a gender-based voting system until the Enlightenment comes along and says, actually, if gender is the division that we need to make, right? And and uh, uh, Rousseau was a big, pu- he, he, he had a big push towards not educating women he, anymore because he didn't think that he, uh, that that you know because he said basically a woman's place is in the home and you don't need to have an education to be able to cook and do my dishes and right so just get back into the kitchen woman i mean that's john jacques rousseau and uh that was that wasn't the christian tradition right um you you look at uh somebody like chaucer that um and the the women in chaucer's uh stories uh, uh, many of them are highly educated, right? They're quoting, they're, they're quoting um, Latin scholars. They're, they're uh, quoting ancient authors. They're uh, talking science through the, the women, um, women in the, in the middle ages, having an education was considered a good thing, an honorable thing. Uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't as widely available because books were harder to come by. Uh, so, but the an educated woman was uh, considered a blessing, right? So you have the Queen of England, who's literally one of the best translators in the country, right? Uh, Queen Elizabeth, um, and 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 she and everybody honors her for that, right? Well, you get to Rousseau says ah, if you if you give a woman too much information, it overheats her brain, and she'll pass out, and then she can't do the dishes anymore, and so she's not of any use anymore right well so feminism really is a response to the enlightenment at first now what the first wave feminism really was after was political equality and they wanted the ability to own land uh, land again now political equality though what happens is um <clears throat> because you have so many of the institutions breaking down in the 19th century political equality comes to be thought of as voting rights, right? Voting rights, but it's because democracy is taking over. And the, the problem in that generation is not, um, is not so much the, uh, well, feminism is really not the problem. The, the uh, democracy and the way that democracy is, pitched is the problem because it is an anti-authoritarian or an anti-office understanding, right? That the only that, yeah, go ahead. No, So there's a couple things I want to know. When is, when are we talking about right now? Like what, what point is it? So, uh, so after the enlightenment, so I believe Wollstonecraft wrote 
she was a contemporary of Jane Austen. So uh, late 1790s um, into the early 1800s. Okay. So this is when the the vindication of the rights of women is written somewhere right in there. So, okay. So this is interesting. So you have um, America is just established. Uh, We're coming into our being. We have, uh, Alec de Tocqueville says, you know, America's got to deal with slavery. <laughs> so you have yeah, that coming yeah. into play too. And so then you see kind of feminism and political rights, would you say, kind of rising up at the same Right. Yeah. Individual rights. Individual, individual rights coming into the conversation in a way that they hadn't before. But we have an individual rights problem running rampant in America right now. Right. Uh, you mean right now or right now? No, then? no. I mean at, at that point in time. At that point in time, yeah. So, so what's going on at the church right at this time is you have so the the church has always had been a public institution with public offices that have a public voice that they are a, a central institution for the understanding of what kind of society do we live in? Right? They're a government. You, you go, they're a real got, government. They're they're a real government that is governing the souls, governing the, the morality of, of uh, the people, right? So the, the village pastor um, is, is a public person. He holds a public office that everybody honors. And well, the, it, within the evangelical church, and a lot of this is because of the abolitionist movement, right? The abolitionist movement um, starts to push that slavery is a sin and that that it needs to be treated as a sin and abolished from the the same way drunkenness or, you know, we, we don't just say, well, we don't just put up with drunkenness, right? We go after, we try to stop it. Uh, And um, the traditional uh, offices, the, 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 the men holding the traditional offices are not going after slavery, they are they and and they will say, well, it's our job to hold society together. To abolish slavery would be actually to disintegrate society, and uh, um, you begin having the rise of seminaries. Seminaries start being planted by abolitionists to train, and and um, and the idea of the pastor being in office begins to transform into the pastor being a profession, right? Because now instead of the person who holds the office saying, hey, I think you should be called as a pastor and then training them up and then ordaining them and, you know, and, and it be all being done in the church by the person in the office, now all of a sudden you can mm-hmm. go get a professional degree, right? So you, you used to be, well, you would get your, you would get your, liberal arts education and then you would be become you know a deacon in the church or an elder in the church and then you would train to become a minister and then the minister um the ministers would come together and lay hands on you and then you that's how you became a minister right the education there was still a high uh, expectation of a high education but the education was not a professional degree You, you didn't get a tech degree in pastoring until seminaries are established. And now you've got a professional degree where you can 
go and get one, but you don't need the pastor to send you off to get your professional degree. You go and you pay for it. And once you get your professional degree, then now I'm qualified to be a pastor. And so I become a pastor. But uh, the reason that this part of the a major part of the reason this happens is you get a divide between the revivalist pastors who are strong on abolition and the pastors holding offices, holding the historic offices who are weak on abolition. And it's a moral, it's a, it's a moral divide or almost a moral, um, a moral seesaw that, that unseats the, the, public importance of the, of the ministers, yeah. right. Of the office, yeah. right. Because now it's really clear to um, amongst the evangelicals and the Methodists and the, 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 the revivalist pastor, it's really clear that, that slavery is a problem. We've got to do something about it. We've got to, we've got to abolish slavery. Um, and they start basically uh, refusing um, and, you know, if somebody if somebody's a slave owner, they start refusing them entrance, and then they get really radical and start refusing anyone who's not an abolitionist entrance into. Um, uh, in entrance into these groups that are outside the church, but are where the real Christianity is happening, right? Um, so these revival groups that are growing and they're all voluntary, right? So voluntary in the church, it's voluntary in a certain sense, but it's also something that historically it's not a voluntary institution. You are required to be a part of it. You're not required to be a part of these abolitionist groups, but they're the, they're the real, the real Christians, the real converted Christians, the ones that are actually truly because they can see sin and those other people are blind, right? And so you get this divide over abolition within the church that weakens the institutional church, weakens the position of the institutional church, and really weakens its moral voice, right? It, it, It can't speak, it ends up not being able to speak on lots of issues because it, it didn't speak clearly on that. And some, and sometimes People did speak clearly, but they didn't speak abolitionist clearly, right? And so we see that um, now. <laughs> you, yeah, it's very. You get some very radical abolitionists um, that are anti-institutional completely. Like right. they, there's they they separate themselves completely from the institutional historic church historic offices of the church um, yeah even frederick is, frederick right, Douglass. The problem on the other side right it, and frederick Douglass ran into those kind of abolitionists and when he was asked to speak and <laughs> they start ripping up the constitution he was like wait right. a second <laughs> hold on right. now yeah <laughs> i kind of need right. that and, thing <laughs> and um and it's such an emotional uh issue for for folks at the time that it's really hard to to clearly delineates the issue sometimes, right? So you've got um, a guy, you've got a pastor who maybe speaks against slavery, but isn't what they called an immediatist, right? right? The immediate abolition of slavery, right? He says, we have to do it legally. And they say, we have to do it now. 
how whatever the means right and and then that that ends up they they end up splitting and opposing one another um rather than being able to hold together and say okay what do you mean legally what do you you know how, how do we so uh so the because a lot of the abolitionists wanted war right let's go to war and end slavery that was uh, if that's what it takes whatever it takes um and the the loss of life was understood by some of the people that weren't immediatists mediatists and said no let's keep working the legal changes right let's uh so it's very complex um and hard even to track because sometimes people also switch midstream and realize, oh, no, mm. I, I used to not be an immediatist. Now I am one or I used to be an immediatist and now I'm not one. So it's like a lot of history. Um, so so we're <coughs> we're going to have to talk about abolitionists at some point because I want to talk about that because I think that there's so many parallels to then and now that are exactly in the same trajectory. Right. And and so yeah, but with with the pro-life Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and abolition, yeah, abolitionism right now. But bring feminism into the same because feminism and the abolitionism, they kind of come together or should I say the um, rights for the, all human, you know, are coming right, together. Yeah. The rights for all start to uh, they start to resonate. Be, and and what's really interesting is the rights for all resonate but they're always focused in on voting rights to deny somebody a vote in, in a d- democratic society is to deny th- their humanity, right? That's the, it, um, mm-hmm. we're saying all of the citizens that are human beings get to vote, right? And then these people don't get to vote. And that's the, the, the logic is therefore we're saying these people are not, fully human um which was what some people really were saying but the uh uh so the feminists who are arguing for women's suffrage and then um the abolitionists who who continue to have to fight for the full voting rights of of ex-slaves um end up coming into contact and and supporting one another um Sometimes and sometimes not supporting one another because sometimes some of the feminists were racists and they didn't <laughs> they 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 wanted the vote for white women and not for anyone else and um and, and sometimes they said look I'm I'm not a racist but we can't fight for everything all at once I can only I only have the energy to fight for women's suffrage you'll have to do that yeah. have that fight on your own and and then sometimes they would they would come together and and um and find common cause and, uh, and the, the rights of men, uh, ex slaves who were men to vote ends up passing long before the women's suffrage, yeah. um, which I believe is 1917 when you end up with, uh, women's suffrage. Yeah. Cause I believe it's 1917, well, the 19th amendment. Well, you know, you got black people who get the right to vote. The first civil rights act was like 1886. I believe it was. Yeah. So, you know, you got black men, but, yeah, so, but still women couldn't vote yet. Women couldn't vote yet. No, no. But so, yeah. yeah, black men were able to get their rights to vote then. And I think some of the people who are intersectionality leaders, um, they are always pointing to even in 1917, black women still didn't get the same amount of rights to vote. in right. that t- era. Yeah. I mean, they legally did, but 
not right. socially, right? You, so you had all sorts of social pressures and coer- evil, coercive social pressures at times um, that to stop black women from voting. Sorry, 1866, um, first, 1866. 1866 first civil rights act. Yeah. So, um, so 1917, I believe is the 19th amendment uh, right to vote and any, anything that, um, makes it so that women can't have equal ownership, property ownership rights is also removed, right? So different states would have aspects of laws that kept it, made it more difficult for women to, to have the rights. Um, They could, so they could get a mortgage. And um, it was a, it was a long time before um, women had the same, that banks you know, because banks could keep all of their mortgage, how they give out mortgage stuff secret. And so it was still for the banks. I don't know, complied, so to speak, uh, with the the laws. Um, but it was that, you know, banks knew that women on average earned less. And so they were less likely to get a mortgage for other reasons, um, which is when the second wave feminism actually kicks off. And second wave feminism um, is the in in the 60s really 60s and 70s and that's the social equality push in feminism right so you wanted so political equality um was the first wave feminism and (coughs) what's happening during the first wave feminism is all the there's so many of the social structures that gave us an identity are breaking down um and policy but but the but nationalism politics is what holds the political structures hold when a lot of the social structures fall apart. Now, some of that is because people from all different countries are showing up in America. And as immigrants, the normal ways that you hold together your identity begin to dissolve as you become a part of a new place. Right. We had um, we our school our we had a classical Christian school down in California and we had a lot of immigrant families and the the fathers uh, that were sometimes first sometimes second generation immigrants they would say look we want our kids here because if we put them in the government school in our neighborhoods they're going to be taught in Spanish right they're going to be taught Mexican literature they're not they're going to be kept out of the social system out of the legal system they won't have access because their English won't be good enough they won't have access because they won't know American literature they won't have access to society uh, the, uh, or the legal system if they're kept apart right and the 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 left is telling us hey it's for your own good we need to teach you in spanish because you can't learn english as well as us you can't and so we're trying to be um there there's very condescending but it's, but the the fathers knew my kids need access to the legal system my kids need access to american literature they need access to the to the american story to become a part of it if they if they want to ever, ever have a stake here so you mean to tell me that the immigrants came over and saw that the pandering to their culture was a way to keep them separated from the freedom and liberties that come with american culture right we don't want to give you the freedom that white people have. So we're going to keep all the brown people over there and teach them in a different language. Right. <laughs> and we'll give you, and, and they actually, they, they had all these anti-poor laws that kept, um, 
that kept people poor, right? So you would give them, um, you would give uh, equal housing benefits um, to them, to to immigrants, so that they could get a house. But that that meant they had to buy it in a certain neighborhood, right? And that the equal housing benefits made sure that all of the immigrants Stayed, couldn't yeah. get houses in the white neighborhoods, right? It was it was terrible, right? Terrible anti-poor laws, um, but they were all pitched as benefits, right? There's as as uh, um, we're trying to help you, right? So, and but you know when when helping hurts people, um, as long as you do it with with uh, good intentions then you can get away with it in california so second wave so, so got, go, go ahead so so in the first wave all of those social social identity markers are breaking down um and okay wait wait, the, wait. and wait, wait. The politics holds together social identity markers what which ones are you talking about so <clears throat> so you have um you know, people come over from the old world and for a little while they can, they can hold together like, Oh, I'm an Irishman. I'm a Englishman. I'm a Welsh. Um, but eventually those things dissolve and, um, and they, and you become an American, right? The, um, but right at the same time, the church is losing its stake in the public sphere, um, because of its own, dividedness and complicity um, in sin too and, you know right yeah so it was it was compromised it was complicit and so it and it, but what held the society together was um a political vision or a political understanding and so but there were certain people left out of that political uh situation right so the if if all of the normal things that give you an identity start to dissolve. Um, and everybody says, well, but, but politics is holding the politics is holding us together. That's our identity. We're Americans. And then you look around and you're like, Oh, except for some of these people can't vote. Right. Well, if, if being an American is the, if the citizenship is the marks you as valuable, that marks you as a human, then you've got to fix that. Right. And and so they set up to fix it. So you've got the women's suffrage, you've got the um, the uh, suffrage movements to try and get now the now freed slaves the vote, right? You've got all of these movements which are um, which makes sense in that context, right? So, but um, but the the they're set over against enlightenment categories which had made the previous situation makes sense, right? It was enlightenment categories that made slavery make sense. Whoa, right? whoa, because whoa, slavery whoa. Had been a, <laughs> slavery had been abolished, right? Slavery had been abolished in the West. Slavery had been made illegal in the West. Slavery comes back in because the enlightenment categories, the enlightenment understanding of a metaphysic that, that had uh, a chain of being, um, with whoever had the power at the moment was above uh, everybody, then that suddenly slavery started to make sense again. Wait, how do, how do we, everything that I hear about the enlightenment has always been good. Everything post enlightenment has always been good, but no one, 
I don't hear people talk right, about the, the lightning has messed up everything. Yeah, well, because but because there wasn't slavery in the West anymore. There hadn't been for a thousand years, over a thousand years. You shut up. Yeah, they had gotten rid of it all because of the Christian understanding of metaphysics right, that said, well, no, you can't enslave a person. That doesn't make any sense. Right? It, quit, it quit making sense with an enlight- until the Enlightenment music brought the chain of being back in. There's slavery all over the ancient world. There's still slavery in Muslim countries, right? Because if you've got a chain of being understanding, then it makes sense that that, that some people are going to be over other people, not just in not just in a economic system, but in a ontological system of value, right? And so um, they had reorganized the human race along a chain of being lines with white people at the top, right? The white, red, uh, white, yellow, red, uh, black were the new categories of chain, the, where the chain of being was uh, organized for humanity, right? So slavery starts to make sense um, again, but then the same thing, they organize men and women along that chain of being. And it makes sense that men are going to be in charge and are going to have the power and women are not going to have power right now. This is so of that situation. um, They, they fight back against that and you get, uh, but they fight back against it in a democratic context, saying everybody should have an equal vote and that that political equality is going to be the symbol of our ontological Wait, equality. So what they do is, is it fair to say, if I'm understanding this correctly, they change the the question to what makes a person human? Well, their vote instead of, no, this person is human, therefore they have these rights. Right. Is that right. kind Whether of what they, yeah, what it, yeah, yeah. So and but but so this is where it gets murky though, because you've got the 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 argument for giving everybody the vote in a democratic society is the right argument, right? But people don't question whether or not the democratic society is right. Right. Uh, that that's where um the the uh you have a major move towards congregationalism within the church, which is a democratic society. The Baptist church starts to grow like crazy, which is a, which is mostly organized along congregationalist lines at this point. Um, you have the, uh, all of the Whoa, move within Christendom out. is towards congregationalism and towards a demo- democratization of the church government at the same time. Oh, snap. You just messed up something for me. Are you saying? Oh, oh my goodness! Baptist friends are going to be so mad at this. Are you? Are you saying? <laughs> most, most of the Baptists now are moving back towards eldership, right? Back towards having offices within the church. Uh, okay, all right. Because so the, they're realizing the problems with a democratic. Oh wow! They, ecclesiology as well. Okay, which is which makes sense. While you ha- why you have. Um, the Baptists supporting in one way or another abortion in the seventies because they yeah, have right. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> okay. So, so if if you have a great chain of being understanding of ontology and economic aspects of our humanity being married to one another and not being 
or, and being inseparable. And the, um, then it, one, one, once you have accepted that, then you look around and say, well, then you shouldn't have hierarchy because nobody is greater than the other, right? We're all equally valuable and human. Democracy makes sense. Democratizing everything makes sense. That's the right answer to the wrong question. <laughs> now, <laughs> so we're, we're so so we're actually doing the right things under the wrong type of of ontological structure. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So you you have this. So you know, Andrew Jackson comes along and you've got this push towards democratization. Now, Andrew Jackson is the worst president we've ever had. And not just because of this, right. Cause of the way he dealt with the Indians. That was, that's a, it's a blight. It's a sin, American right. sin. And, and um, you know, we, which, you know, what you do with them since national sins too, you bring them to Jesus and you right. get forgiven and then you right. leave them behind. But um, uh, the, the, but one of the things that happened at the same time is this populist movement toward democratization that affects everything, including the ecclesiology of the church, right? You've got this push towards democratization um, and the, uh, and feminism, which starts as a, I think, a proper response to the Enlightenment. Hey, you can't leave us out. Um we're humans is, is we're humans <laughs> yeah right is is uh then co-opted by the democratization movement i mean like abraham lincoln a congratulatory letter from Karl marx right if you put them into the if you if you understand what's going on right abraham lincoln um the the civil war all of this is right at the same time as the beginnings of the rise of communism, which is so democratization was the the conservative response to the ontological changes. Communism was the progressive response to the ontological changes. But the ontological changes were that this change towards an understanding that society the society's hierarchies are reflective of the ontology of of people right or affect touch on the ontology of people and so if somebody is above somebody else in society then we're saying they're ontologically superior since we know they're not ontologically superior the conservative response was democratization the progressive response was communism revolution right and so you've got these but they're both making the same assumptions about the hierarchy ontology so so we're so we're currently in a fall we're currently in an either or fallacy right now yep 100 percent in the, we're right in the middle of it and when second wave feminism comes along in the 60s the push, anyway, right here in the 60s the push is for a social a, a completing of the social equality right so they've got the political equality but they have not but it didn't it didn't finish all of the social equality. Um, well, feminism aren't the only people in this spot pay. either. Like you, you have black people that are exactly in the same spot with feminists. Right. So you have feminism and the civil rights movement, second wave feminism and the civil rights movement are side by side and they both end up co-opted by intersectionality. Explain. Right? They both have some of the roots. Uh, the roots of intersectionality are, are in each of the movements 
but they are not yet co-opted by intersectionality until really the 90s, right? The 90s co-opts feminism, it co-opts the civil rights movement, it, it, and intersection, intersectionality in the 90s co-opts feminism, the civil rights movement, and it co-opts the sexual revolution or creates the myth of the sexual revolution. Okay, Jason, uh, you got you to break, well. break that down for me. <laughs> you, you can't just okay. give me stuff like that and be like, you got to tell me like... So second wave feminism in the 60s, uh, the feminine mystique is sort of the big book and, and it's pushing for equal pay, for e- equal pay for equal work, ed- educational equality, equality on in sport, which doesn't mean what it means now, right? What, equality in sports, what is that what you was, said? It, Quality in sports, okay. it, because sports were part of the educational uh, opportunity, uh, right? So they wanted if you had a boys' basketball team, you should have a girls' basketball team. Uh, if you had a boys' football team, you should also get a girls' field hockey team because they didn't think girls should be playing football because <laughs> they still knew the differences in biology. Right? It wasn't an intersectional movement yet. Now, but but the roots the are there for yeah. of that. The roots are there because they're also pushing for birth control, right? And that's the root of the intersection. That's what the intersectionality grabs on was the push for birth control, right? Um, and, and had they not been, had there not been that in there, there wouldn't have been handles, I think, for the intersectionality movement to, um, because they, because birth control, what, how they pitched it was, I should have, control over my womb in the way God has control over my womb, right? I'm the one that should decide what plants and what doesn't plant, you right? Know, it's my womb, right? Now, the um, you can actually control that, but you have to control it with abstinence, right? If you don't, that, that, you have that amount of control. Because within there, there was also there were some good things in second wave feminism, right? They wanted um, they they wanted rape laws uh, added, right? Rape laws that were there were places where there weren't rape laws on the books, um, in the sense that that uh, you couldn't go right, the where the Bible says if you get raped, cry immediately, yeah, and we'll deal with it, right? Well, there were places where there were women crying immediately, and it wasn't getting dealt with right rape wasn't being taken seriously um, and those it's the same thing where the the moral complicity the the immoral the complicity with immorality gave handles to second wave feminism um that we uh, were you know so uh, sexual harassment laws right there were the sexual harassment laws that needed to be there weren't there right um so you have and as you have um when being able to say there's this, there are these things where women are not being treated well and it's not, and there are no, there's no way for them to get justice gives handles to second wave feminism. Um, but, but it's a, as a community, it pushes for all sorts of things, some of them moral, some of them immoral. Right. But what they do is the, at the center of it all, the way that they, pushes they say hey housewives you're not right right you don't get treated with honor you don't get treated with respect right right we'll get it for you and so there's this big push um and and the the feminine the feminist mystique sells like three million copies or something but it's handed from housewife to housewife to housewife to housewife 
hey, you're not happy too, right? Women were not being honored in the position of housewife and mother, and they were being uh, it, they were being treated as as uh, less than second class, not not important uh, because they didn't make money, and money was the thing that. Uh, moved you up and down economic versus ontological it, realities right. it moved you up and down the the system of honor for your value right and here's the thing Karl Marx that's exactly what Karl Marx said right the difference was he said since we know people shouldn't be treated ontologically different we should flatten everything and take money out of the picture now you have this whole this whole society that agrees with Karl Marx that money moves you up and down ontologically and says, therefore make as much of it as you can. And women are kept out of it right now. um, That is the thing that needed to be reformed. That's the thing that needed to be jettisoned instead of uh, saying, okay, well let's give women the opportunity to move up and down the ontological uh, chain of being with us. Right. (laughs) Uh, because um, the that whole movement um, was an attempt to gain access to the movements of the chain of being, right? That that in in the way that we had disorganized society along enlightenment lines, and it ends up being split that that movement even ends up being split over different responses to pornography because there's a whole group within them that says, and look at pornography. It's a huge part of the problem, right? Women are objectified. We want to be treated as humans, but there's a group within that, the second wave feminism that says no, but pornography is a, is a way, you know, pornography, prostitution, those are ways for women to make money. And so women, that's a way for women to gain power. So we don't want to get rid of those things. In fact, we need more of those things because that's because we aren't ever going to be physically stronger, but our sexual allure will be one of the ways that we can make money and gain power over men. And so that second wave feminism ends up being split over pornography. um, And that's where the third wave comes in which I don't think is a really good way to put it because um, it's that's really when intersectionality takes over and you get the whole it's the girl power movements the punk rock movements that I mean I actually saw Bikini Kill live in the 90s so so this is where now finally my experience is not just history but you've got um, this really strong underground push for a uh, for feminism um, to basically get revolutionary and get violent and um, becomes a, really a part of what we saw, which is the intersectionality movement. It just becomes one thing, one more lever that is used by the you know the international communist progressive movements right. to undermine any anything left with historic traditional society and get rid of it so that all of the resistance to being reformed by the most by the powerful by the international elites um uh 
you have to get rid of all of the resistance. I mean, this is why in, in com, you know, communist Russia, like even down to knitting groups, they had to get rid of knitting groups um, where women would come together and, you know, darn socks together. They said, no, you can't even do that right in, in communist uh, revolutions because they said we've got to get rid of traditional connection between people so that we can have them completely individual complete individuals that we can then reform into the groups that we want them to be so that we can reform their psychology and um, to be the proper cog in the system that we are creating economically from the top down you know what one of the things that as you're talking, okay, I, there's two things. I want you to work through and define intersectionality or intersectionality as as you're using it in the context to so make sure I understand it. That's one thing. The other thing is the church is not immune at all to this movement as it relates to feminism. In one way or another, the church, we got to talk about what the church is doing. Is it in flow with it or is it in, in um, or is it fighting against it, but only fighting against it with no center. Like right now we see a lot of people fighting against the left, but they're fine doing anything so long as it isn't left, but it's not the center either. Yeah. That's where I see a lot of conservatism at right now. Yeah. And that's, that's what's frustrating is conservatives often can't tell the difference between making a feminist angry and, and arguing for a, an actual biblical view on m- masculinity and femininity. Right. <laughs> they can't tell the difference, right? They think, well, the feminists are upset at what I said. It must be, it must be masculine. Like, well, but that's actually not, that's not, so feminists getting angry is not our, is that's not our standard, right? Our standard is what does the Bible teach about men and women? Right. What I will teach <coughs> about masculinity, femininity, and the and honor. Right. But we're even uh, getting that part wrong. Hierarchy though. and right. We're not even getting to that part. Honestly, we don't even get to that part of the conversation. Mm. So, what is intersectionality as you understand it? I mean, as I understand it, intersectionality has to do with um, the power dynamics that different social socially organized groups use against one another and Mm. that that uh, intersectionality is the way of describing or um, noticing pointing out the the power dynamics in such a way that we can control them and use them for our own political purposes right right? and so that's what it ends up coming down to it's a form of social equity Right. Yeah, so yeah. intersectionality as a theory has to do with uh, power dynamics and rival rivalries between groups, and who has the power, who doesn't have the power, and how do we you, how do we um, dissolve those power dynamics? Um, and I think I mean uh, people that originally get it first get into it. There's something um, intoxicating about it because it feels like you have special knowledge yes when you can when you start to be able to see power dynamics at yes work, that's right? that's exactly how my mom felt about it she's like david this explains so much why we weren't successful what we were doing what we were doing because right. i am a black woman living in america so i'm a woman first of all and then i'm a black woman so those are two points and then you know 
whatever else I'm in this field. Th- those are two points of intersections of oppression that have helped me back uh, from being successful. And so almost yeah. in one sense or another gives an excuse for why you are where you are. It gives you a whole new way to read out a trajectory in the world. Yeah. It's, and, and that's, what's so intoxicating about it. And, and it's like, um, and, and I mean, intoxicating in a, almost in a technical sense, there's a drunkenness that comes with starting to see this when other people can't. And it gives you um, the same way, you know, when somebody first starts drinking, and all of a sudden they've got, it's like, they've got all the courage in the world, right? I can, you know, right. and they're, <laughs> right. <clears throat> there's this intoxicating effect that, that it has at the beginning, but then it's really destructive because it, it it's an attempt to see human interactions objectively. And so you have, you end up um, almost separating your mind out from normal human interactions and try mm. to perch from an objective place, you know, and almost stand on your own shoulders in order to watch the interactions and you stop having the interactions in a direct way. Is that Hegelian? Is that what that is ultimately too? It's uh, well, it's Hegelian in the sense that everything comes down to power dynamics, right? Yeah. Everything comes down to, uh, but it's that it's, it's also very not, um, individualistically yeah, where, yeah. Um, where you have a special knowledge here's let me tell you what's really going on yeah. between this guy and this girl that right Gnosticism, it can't just yeah. be in love and, and it can't and you know you can't just be the mystery that solomon talks about right <laughs> there's actually paradoxes don't it. exist in this in intersectionality right that's not possible yeah that's um, not possible so so, so foucault is he's one of the major power philosophers behind it so Maybe we can talk about him at some point too. Uh, here you Michael, go, Michael. <laughs> so, so, all right, I'm putting him down. Is he in our list of people we need to talk about? I think he is, Michael Foucault. Okay, so oh. then let's. I want to get to. So, I want to bring Dorothy Sayers in because so she's in the 19, you know, 30s, 30s, 20s, 30s, yeah, 40s. Okay, when is she? So she's a she's a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. Oh, okay. Uh, she, She's the only woman who was ever allowed to come to an Inklings meeting, actually, um, which is really interesting. So she's a and she she's a um, she writes uh, detective novels. That's kind of her. She she's an artist. So if you see those all the old Guinness posters, uh, she was the author, the artist that she worked for Guinness and did uh, the uh, the old. British Guinness posters that you see, um, they're still really popular that her art. Uh, and then she was a, she wrote plays. She was a dramatist as well as a novelist, good novelist, short story writer. Then she wrote a lot of theological and philosophical essays. Um, she's got a couple of books, uh, on Christianity that are really, really good. Um, that are, that are just theological essays. Uh, so she, just as a, she was a keen piercing mind that was able to get to the philosophical foundations. So Center, yeah. she, yeah. So she um, translated the first two and a half books of Dante before she died. And then her, one of her students finished it. Um, and it was the Oxford classics, um, 
or the Penguin Classics. Penguin Classics, yeah. Preferred translate preferred translation for years. Still is because I it's think. such a translation. Yeah, yeah um, her notes on understanding Dante in translation as well as in historical context um, are still basically considered the standard. Um, she was she's just an incredible, incredible woman. And she didn't find um, Dante and, until in her fifties, and yeah, she fell in love and, with Dante. And she. She taught herself Italian so she could translate it. I yeah. mean, she was, she was brilliant. Um, and um, her, she did a series of, of, uh, um, one act plays uh, from the life of Jesus that are really moving, beautiful. Um, that that she used to produce and put on, um, in London every year around Christmas time and then around Easter and. Um, so she was she she was a storyteller at heart. Right? Uh, she wrote what's called cozy mysteries. Right? They're they're not um, they're they're not the kind of mystery where you've got this intense uh oh somebody's going to get murdered. Right, you're just trying to find the murderer, and um, uh, so so uh, kind of a murder she wrote type of mysteries, which is a, they have that great show from the '80s and early '90s, Murder She Wrote. Those are cozy mysteries. There's not the threat of somebody getting murdered in the story, but somebody has been murdered and you're trying to figure it out. And so she's kind of a, uh, my wife likes to compare her to Jane Austen in terms of her social commentary, her novels as social commentary. She's really brilliant. Um, and, and so she was able to, so her, her take on feminism is really interesting because she's between first and second wave feminism. And she's a, devout devout christian and she's in the middle of it because you have this woman who is highly educated she's in places that men don't want her or like why right. would she need to be there and yet she's completely opposed to feminism in one sense um, right and she gives some fem- yeah feminism the way we think of it right 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 she would she would absolutely yeah. tear apart any modern day yeah. feminist like there's no way right. She would even be a supporter of that. I don't even know how they can quote her in a lot of ways. Um, but she's also given a very clear critique to evangelicalism about how they are seeing women. Right. They have because they have in her mind, they have uh, there. They have uh, swallowed enlightenment chauvinism. Oh, right. So evangelicalism has swallowed enlightenment chauvinism and is not fighting back against the enlightenment chauvinism. So, so Dorothy Sayers, she's, she's the reason there's a class, there's a revival of classical education or she's a, a main reasons, right? She, because she was saying it, it, So in her day, what was called the scientific education revolution is happening where they're reforming education along scientific grounds rather than along historic educational grounds. And so she um, wants to say, well, no, there's actually this, we know how to educate and we know what an education is. We don't need to do a bunch of studies to figure out how to educate and come up with a definition of what an education is. We already know what that is. Um, And, uh, but, she sees that the evangelical church swallowing the enlight or having swallowed the enlightenment whole and no longer fighting for a historic Christian faith. 
I've reading through what is um, our women human. I I realize that Dorothy Sayers might be the key to understanding kind of where we are, not just with feminism right now, but actually with the whole conversation with intersectionality, social justice, and the racial issues. I think she's the key. And she's, she said, what is repugnant to every human being is to be reckoned always as a member of a class and not as an individual. We were talking about right. that earlier. And, and then she goes on to say, what is unreasonable and irritating is to assume that all one's taste and preferences have to be conditioned by the class to which one belongs. That has been the very common error in which men have frequently fallen about women. And it is the error into which feminist women are perhaps a little, a, a little inclined to fall about themselves. We are talking in such a way about women, even now, as in, as like, as, as a group, and ve- instead of talking about that woman, what she wants and what she is, she, um, I don't even know where to start with this other than this fact to say that I think we have missed talking about that a, a person, what they are and what they're for. And then what about that person? What is it that enlightens them? What is it that brings joy to that person to do? And, and once you start understanding what is a person, what are they for? You start realizing the individual aspects of the person. And then you don't put them in this class to where they have to think like, I think she said, um, I was trying to, I want to find the quote because it's so much better than I can say it, but I'll try and paraphrase it. She said, um, when people are asking for, for a woman's perspective on a situation, they're making a mistake because they're asking as if it's, it's really Gnostic. They're asking as if this woman is united to all the minds of other women. And so therefore their take on something is going to be directly in line so that all the other women stand up and applaud. And she's like, right. That's not the case. You know, um, what's the difference between a poet and an engineer? Are they both the same? No, they have different veins and different operations and different connections because of the kind of person that they are and how they operate. And it's the same thing with women. Um, each woman is an individual, actual human being that has her own unique desires and things that she's uh, attached to and things she's not attached to. It's not like there's just one block. Oh, that's one. That's no, no, no. They're, they're, it's way more diverse than that, just like it is for men. And it's so funny. Like, it's so basic. But that's not it how is. we're thinking about anybody at all. No. And, and because it's, you can't, it's too hard to turn individuals into rivals of individuals you have to right if you're gonna so if you're gonna break down society you have to get people to think in terms of groups right you've got to turn groups into rivals with groups but you've got to tribalize and make turn everybody into a gang member well yeah you got to categorize everybody yeah gang member. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 and that and so we and and it's a it's an old, I mean, it's a tactic, it's an old tactic, but we don't resist it well because we have bought into that metaphysic already. I think I found the quote. It said, but simply what women want as a class is irrelevant. I want to know about Aristotle. Is it true that most women care nothing? It is true that most women care nothing about him and a great many male uh, (laughs) undergraduates turn pale and faint in the thought of him. But I, a centric individual that I am, 
do want to know about Aristotle, and I submit that there is nothing in my shape or bodily function which need prevent my knowing about him. <laughs> it's just right, you know. She's and she's hitting on, um, she she's hitting on the fact that uh, I, I was thinking about the comment. Okay, there's two things when we talk about women, the humanity part of them, I think, kind of eludes, uh, evades us a little bit, but. I want to make sure that we don't miss out on the fact that God, how God made them and, and who God made them for and those kind of structures. Cause some of that stuff isn't in this essay, right? Like yeah, she, she's, she's talking about something different. Yeah. She's talking, but she's on a whole different conversation, but I want to make sure that those foundation pieces aren't missing, right? Because there's things that she's saying here that if you don't have those foundational pieces in place, you can haul off and become a feminist and, um, in the, in the modern sense without anchoring those pieces together, like literally God made um, men and women and he made them as a, a, again, ontological economic. There's, there's different things that they do in their nature, right? That, that is not something that can be avoided. Women have a womb that, that tells you right directly that God has a different flow and function for them inside of nature. Men don't have a womb. <laughs> they have a different flow and function directly inside nature. But that doesn't mean that they both aren't very, very, very human in their emotions and desires right. and all those things that they are. But that but that's where that's where you have to realize she is she so where um the early feminists I think fought the enlightenment without undo, undoing the categories of the enlightenment, she is fighting the enlightenment with a Christian understanding, right? So mm. where the enlightenment categorized women as less rational, mm. right? Mm. More emotional, right? That, that, so that the, it categorized, it categorized women no longer using a biblical economy, right? Now it, it's just talking about, it, it just comes in and says, well, what are the, what are the, you know, men have these strengths and women have these weaknesses, right? And that was the enlightenment way of dividing up a lot. So it was divided up along power lines, power dynamic lines, basically. Um, and <clears throat> that, and that is not how you divide up men and women, right? You divide up men and women along economic lines, not ontological mm. lines, but they're not even using those categories, right? They're using power, uh, power, and you know societal structure lines. Rather, um, so um, as Christians, we say, well, okay, here's here's the things they have in common: that men and women are human, fully, um, fully deserving of the honor of the image of God. Right? They're they're each neighbors right there those are the so we've got all these things in common what are their differences well they've got uh economic functional differences women can have babies men cannot have babies women are uh women um can be planted in men can plant right sexually speaking right you don't have the uh there there are uh, um differences economically and then what that means is feminine honor and mm. masculine honor take different shapes mm. right 
So, so far, we're still talking biblical categories. Now, uh, if you so uh, other things are societally imposed. If you said who is who is more desirous of sex, for example, if you are in the 1300s or the 1200s, you're going to give in your in your in reading English poetry, you're going to get one answer. If you're in the 20th century watching sitcoms, um, you're going to give a different answer, right? There, there are things that, um, but because those are not, those don't have to do with form and function. Those are societal. So mm. there, are, there are things about us that are formed by which society we grow up in. What, you know, what cartoon watch as a kid, what, what expectations societally are imposed on us. Um, or not even imposed on us. We just, just form and shape us, right. That, um, that are going to, there are things that are going to change societally in the way men and women interact. It doesn't change the economic function that God has designed and given to men and women. Men are supposed to be hard and protective and fit when facing outward and soft and protective when facing inward, right? There's a, you know, it, it, there is never, you, you, if, if, a, if there's a society, so a good example is I was talking to a Muslim, a missionary in a Muslim country. And he, and I was like, what's what are the, what are the tough things when you've got a new hurt? He's like, Oh yeah. Trying to explain to a husband, he doesn't get to beat his wife. <laughs> they have like, that's the, 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 in, in a Muslim country, the husbands beat their wives. You don't get to do that anymore. You're a Christian now. That's a sin. They're like, what? I had, I can't, how am I supposed to control her? It's like, yeah, yeah, you, that's the other thing, right? Now you love her and she has her own human. Um, she, you, you don't control her, right? That's not the way the, the, the control comes from the spirits work within her. And, and she grows in self-control and like, that's not your, you're not the Holy spirit. You don't get to do that. Right. The, um, <clears throat> there are things that doesn't matter what culture you're in, they're sin, not sin. Right. And then there are things that are different cultural expressions of the economic um, embrace of the joy of the differences between men and women. How, when, when you look at the church right now in, in culture and society and you see, um, kind of the ball, a massive ball being dropped as it relates to the conversation with women and feminism, because feminism uh, is a, is a, it's one of those things that just, we're not we're not beating very well. Um, I don't yeah, think we're, we're losing. Yeah. We're losing to it. Yeah, yeah. How, we've been losing, but I th- I think it's because we've been losing to it for multiple generations. Uh, we started losing really three generations ago when. The feminine mystique that said, hey, housewives, you're not honored, right? That sold two million copies. And it was and it wasn't because of there was a major push from a marketing company. Right. It was one housewife said, yeah, I'm not honored very well. And they went to their neighbor and said, are you honored very well? No. Well, hey, read this book. This will explain it. Right. We didn't honor the the um, we didn't honor the mothers of our children. And so they were vulnerable to the lies of the serpent, right? Mm, back That's, in the garden again. Back, yeah, it's back to that same thing, right? Uh, we didn't honor the the 
um, our wives and, and the mothers of our children, our own mothers, right? And so now that we're multiple generations in, and when we start to say, let's solve it, we tend to go back to the 50s and 60s and think that was the golden age because women were still at home, right? But that was actually the age in which um, they weren't honored well. That was the age in which they were vulnerable. So we need different, we need a different, right? I think we actually need to dig into the scriptures and um, dig into the law of God and dig into what is it, what, and, and get the content of our love for our wives and our daughters and our mothers and our grandmothers get the content of our love from the scriptures again and learn what it is to show feminine honor. There again. is a, there is a, a post enlightenment saturation that we all have over the top of us and reading say sayers, um, uh, are women human really made me question some, uh, made me see some of the post enlightenment mildew that's around this foundation. And I had to start, you know, thinking through some of the things about, you know, uh, you know, my my girls, my wife, you know, how how am I encouraging the type of Proverbs 31 woman? And when you read that, you realize that while I think it's very easy for us to use language like a wife's um, a woman's job is in the home um, and it's. We forget, though, that while we that might be true about the family, um, it doesn't mean that that's where her work stays. Ultimately, uh, right. You know, her work progresses in such a way that whatever is cultivated in the home between both you and her advances beyond the walls of the home, ultimately into the gates of the city and into fields so that yeah. people can see her that what she has done, what she, what kind of person she is, as she engages with the world, you know, right. That it, and the, it, we, we tend to even like, and think about even the way we use the term homemaker, yeah. right. We, we, we tend to think that that's an insult in our society and then say, well, but, and, and then, yeah, but, Okay, but it says that women are makers of home or home despots. You know, there's all sorts of ways of where we try to we try to f fix the we we try to see. Yeah, but we don't mean it like that, right? Well, Jesus literally says, "Okay, I'm going away to make a home for you." Right? Jesus is a homemaker. God is a homemaker. God built this mm -hmm. planet as our right, and so if we think. If we're thinking homemaker is an insult, then we need to dig into our own. Even if we're, we need to dig in and say, "Oh, a homemaker, like you're you're making a world for children to grow up in, right? You're reflecting God. You are ref God, the homemaker, right? You're reflecting Him. She's reflecting Him at, in that homemaking work, and the um it." that is something that doesn't stay put. Right. Right. That's, it's not something that a, a well-built home is something that, that expands and explodes and, and over, over 
runs boundaries yeah, um, beca- because you're creating, you're forming more little people <laughs> to go right. out and take over, right? You, um, it's something that is so expansive that um, we we have we don't even we don't even really know how to talk about it no and you know um, the, the more that those 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 realities jason is as, as you were talking i'm thinking about you know you talk about making a home the love between me and my wife um creates other human beings and in that process god has used her womb in the place where he decides to stitch together ears and eyes and noses and mouths and souls and all those right. things are happening in her womb for us to take so much of that for granted and then try and make her um, uh, take take her economic realities and make her like us is a massive insult to what she yeah. actually is, the kind of human <laughs> right. that she is, right? Um, and it, we've we've talked about gaining wisdom from women, but one of the things that it it, it, it seems to me that in trying to put women in this particular type of uh, that uh, gather them up together and put them in this kind of category where we failed that in understanding the the individual economic realities of women is exactly where we're failing at in understanding the individual economics of every individual man yeah. or woman race or or so I want to this is the this is how Dorothy Sayers ends this this um, essay to oppose one class perpetually to another young against old manual labor against brain worker rich against poor women against man is to split the foundation of the state and if the cleavage runs too deep there remains no remedy but force and dictatorship if you wish to preserve a free democracy you must base it not on classes and categories for this will land you in the totalitarian state where no one may act or think except as the member of a category. You must base it upon the individual Tom, Dick and Harry and the individual Jack and Jill. In fact, upon you and me, man, this is back in the thirties. I know she's, she is prophetic. I mean, she looks at it and she she basically nails down intersectionality and says, "Look out if you if you let this go, you know where you're going to end up, right? That 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 individuals no longer have the sort of freedom to be themselves because they have to be the member of a class, and that uh, and every class will be a rival of every other class. And if I speak, I only speak for that class, right? So that's right. that's narcissism." Yeah. It is. It's Gnosticism. It's ethnic Gnosticism. It's it's uh, economic Gnosticism. Yeah, economic Gnosticism. You've got uh, sexual Gnosticism. Sexual Gnosticism, and and that's what I mean by the third wave feminists don't realize that they have basically just become one more finger in the raised fist of, uh, of the Iron Curtain, trying to turn us into a giant mechanistic society that is looking for interchangeable parts and is no longer looking for individuals. It's so trans. It's <laughs> so it? trans, bro. So right. like this, this really hits me because I think 
the, the way that I see this working out, and this is where I want to get to like with conservatives is that, so then what we've done is instead of seeing people for as individuals, we say, Hey, you know what we need? We need a black voice. We need somebody yeah. who's black, who can speak on this from a black perspective. And it's like, well, but that's, that's a massive failure. That's a, that's buying into a worldview and, um, a worldview that believes that these groups and sects all share the same mind. It's monolithic. And so yeah. if, if they share the same mind that obviously they have the same experiences, therefore he can see the things that we can't see as, and we really mess this up instead of having a, it's so simple. It's really, really simple. Instead of being more robust and saying, wait a second, where did he grow up at? Did he have a mom and a dad? Was he in the middle of the ghetto and had to deal with these type of things? We just assume, well, if he's black, then therefore he has a black perspective on this because right. he has a certain type of knowledge that only black people have. Let's get a woman's perspective. Oh, she has a certain type of knowledge that only women have. And so you, she, you're doing exactly what Sayer says. Don't do. Don't relegate people to particular classes and groups. And then you have to speak uh, on just you're a representative of that class or that group. It's like, no, wait, wait, this is me. I speak for me. Right. Right. And, and the thing is, is because you, you stop being able to be, everything becomes about power and influence. Right. And you quit being able to just rejoice and enjoy the, the person that in front of you and their experience and learn from it. And, Right, because now you are looking for a black perspective, or you're looking for a Jewish perspective, or you're looking for some sort of group think perspective, um, and you lose you lose all of the joyful parts of life, which are this individual's experience, you know, being communicated. I mean, you lose the poetry, you lose. I mean, that you lose the the. Um, being able to connect to the person in front of you as an individual and experience the joys that they have experienced, the wisdom that they've gained through that connection. Yeah. I, it's not possible anymore. Well, and we're in different groups. We've made different categories that really aren't real categories. These are faux categories. They're not real categories. The color of your skin is not a category, right? Like your sex right. is not a category. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so what's it's it's a it's a category, but not that kind of category. I mean, right. It's, not the kind that not, we're trying to make yeah, it to be not the kind that we're trying to make it to be. Right. So um, and and this is where so when we were talking super identity and there were people that were like, well, wait, so do we have to. How how do we how do they come together? <laughs> how do they come there? Right? Where is it that you can come together? Well, the fact they're there. Those are categories, but they're not rivals. Right. So you can, you can say like, I grew up in, you know, if, if somebody grew up in a neighborhood, a Puerto Rican neighborhood and say, well, yeah, this was, this was the experience of my neighborhood. And all of our, these Puerto Rican kids had this same experience in this neighborhood. That's a category, but that doesn't make you my rival because I grew up in a white neighborhood or a mixed neighborhood or, you know, uh, the the we are immediately looking f at other groups as rivals as if there's not enough to go around right that's always part of it right 
there's there's not enough to go around. Um, and if you your experience, you know, if, if you loved your neighborhood, that that's somehow a threat to my neighborhood. But that's that means that we have turned that aspect of our we've turned that into an idol. Well, and and we're saying something about I think we're trying to argue which one is more human. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. that's part of the argument that's failure here, which is why I think a lot of people when we were talking about um, uh, 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 ethnicity and in, in, um, what was the show that we did? The super the super, super identity yeah, super identities. Ethnic, ethnicity. Identity. That's what it was, um, was was only saw these two as rivals instead of seeing them as pieces of the puzzle that fit together to make more beautiful a reflection of the whole. Right. So w- w- part of inside of of us seeing each other's different cultures is to say, Oh, that's how that you and I are, our ties are human ties. They're they're not, they're not in competition with each other. It's a, it's a display of humanity broadening out to point to the super identity. Ultimately it says something about our humanity in its economic realities points to the objective beauty of God. Right. Right. That's exactly what we lose. Yeah. Is, um, you know, so, and, and, you know, this is, this is the, the, I mean, you see this in the, the awkwardness of a church potluck in a multicultural church, right? Where you look at the, you, you look at the rice and the noodles sitting next to each other and you say, okay, I've got, rice and I've got noodles and I've got meatballs and I've got, but which, which one goes with which, you know, and you think, <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> so, we, you know, and uh, you're, you're not, and there's something, um, di- there's a difficult com- part of the coming together because sometimes you, there's awkward <laughs> moments, especially when right? white people start putting raisins in the potato salad. <laughs> that's listen i thought them was roaches i didn't know what had happened and i was like why people don't have roaches now anyway i you're right that's a perfect right. example right um because because there are times when you look at it and you're like i'm not sure how it fits together <laughs> yet right so you have to just like bump into each other by faith and and know that there's that over generations you know we'll figure it out but that in the meantime and we um, and I can't remember if I told this story or not, but because we, we had a multicultural, um, multi-ethnic church down in California, and there was, and we would have potlucks, and then um, the the uh, there's a couple of different um, Chinese immigrant families, um, and finally, after a couple of potlucks, they said, "Is it okay if we bring our food too?" <laughs> like, well, of course, it's. Of course it's okay. We we want it here. And they're like, okay, but it's different. Like we don't Yeah, like, we talked it's about different. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that where the but that's actually God's idea, right? Is like it's not like we're gonna get to the marriage supper of the lamb and it's gonna be like an early American Thanksgiving and everybody's going to have to eat it, whether that's what they ate or not. Right. It's you're going to get there and you're going to have it's, it says all the tongues, all the tribes, all of the peoples, all the nations. So you're going to have Cuban food and Mongolian food and, 
the you know Indian food and all, all the different foods are going to be at that potluck or at that at the marriage supper of the lamb. And then we'll figure out how those spices go together. Cause we, we maybe don't know yet, but we need to be that's practicing. The, that's, yeah. That's yeah. what history is. Yeah. That's what history is. It's yeah. the figuring out of how all the spices are going to fit together at the marriage supper of the lamb. You know, we had David Fowler on that's, it's funny how the conversation of common law is a type of spices coming together throughout history mm-hmm. for us to see, Oh, that's how they came together before in the past. And this is a tradition that's handed down and given to us. How do we then take and make much of that tradition? And, you know, you talked about this before with fatherhood. Um, This is what was handed down to me, son. This is where I shipwrecked that. Let me give you this. You go further than me and you hand down to my grandson and you shipwreck somewhere else and then teach him, you know, and, and it's funny, this whole, since we've been talking, all of this has come back to, covenant faithfulness over time um taking traditions and the father the stories of our forefathers abraham isaac and jacob and adam and you know taking those things and be like here this is this is uh this is the tradition handed down through time that god has been perfecting and now this is in your hands to do much with to understand greatly to hand down and so you know, it's funny that common law and all those things are right inside of this same conversation. I was listening. Um, just want to go back to kind of the human thing. This is kind of important to me because the question I find myself asking more often than not now is what kind of human is this? You know, um, and I want to start there because I want to assume something about the other person that I'm talking to, that they are a human right. just yeah. like me. And have some differences that I don't have, but human nonetheless, absolutely human right. nonetheless. And Dorothy Sayers is really helping me work some of this out because she starts saying, you know, stop asking what women want for the most part. That's that's a, that's ridiculous. What does this woman want? Right. What does this woman want? And this is Proverbs. This is this is, um, you know, uh, when Solomon's telling his son, enjoy the woman of your youth. That's your woman. Find out what she wants serve that woman it ain't enough for you to find right. out what women want right <laughs> that right. is yeah. it's not you your job that's not your job you got you got a woman yeah to and and peter says study <laughs> that right. woman right like, like and it's gonna take pretty much a lifetime um to 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 uh get even a little bit a little ways in because they're made in the image of an god of infinite depths and a God of infinite mystery. And, and that's what it feels like most of the time um, is how do I find, how, how do I study this woman? Right. It's just like men, men got women aren't called to submit to men. A woman is called to submit to a man, right. It's to add Agreed. her energy to the mission of one particular man in marriage. And the, you know, whenever so when I talk to people about headship, um, especially, you know, you, you meet folks that are like, oh, man, I just I don't I don't like headship at all. I like to open to Corinthians and say, is it because you're uncomfortable with a woman being the head over a man? Right. Because, look, Paul says right here, this woman has been given headship over the body of this man. Does that not make you comfortable? Do you not want women to have headship? Is that your problem? <laughs> and, I, and it's I'm a 
You're I'm not trying to be snarky, but I, you know, but I'm, but I do think that it, it actually, it, because women are given the headship over their husband's bodies. They have enlightened right? categories though. That's what you're blowing up. Right. That's exactly what I'm after is, is hierarchy. I, I mean, hierarchy is inescapable. It's either according to power and it's top down according to power, or it's according to uh, love, right? As voluntary, voluntary gift giving of, of submission. And husbands are called to submit their bodies to the headship of their wife. You know, that that's pretty much, um, and it's an inescapable concept. Uh, and I, and I do think that, um, to, to deny the headship of the Bible is to end up with a headship based on power, based on strength and power and, um, force coercion. I was, as you're talking about this, you made me think of another, um, um, quote from Dorothy in the book I can't make I can't do it as good as just as she does and I'm a horrible reader but it's so good I almost want to um, but she talks about the jobs she's like a woman man say a woman's job is in the home um, and uh, oh let me see if I can find it um, and she goes on to list all the jobs Oh, I don't want to spoil it before because it's too good. It's too good. You know what I'm talking about? I I do. Yeah, yeah. I think she gets this actually directly from G.K. Chesterton because he says something similar. Um, so it, it, there's a great book called Brave New Family. G.K. Chesterton's book on the family. Um, yeah, but she. I. This is a almost a direct quote i think <laughs> oh she here here it goes okay so is it is that what it is that she's going after okay i got I think I, so yeah i'm gonna yeah. try my best to, to do this justice let's accept the idea that a woman should stick to their own jobs the jobs they did so well the good old days before they started talking about votes and women's rights let us return to the middle ages and ask what we should get then in return for certain political and educational privileges which we have to abandon which we should have to abandon. It is a formidable list of jobs, the whole of spinning industries, the whole of dyeing industries, the whole of weaving industry, the whole of catering industry, and which would not please Lady Astor. I don't know who that is. But perhaps the whole of the nation's brewing and distilling, all the preserving, pickling and bottling industry, all of the baking, curing. And since in those days, a man was often absent from home for the months together on war and business management of uh, was gone on business, a very large share in the management of land estates. Here are the women's jobs and that and what has become of them. They are all being handled by men. It is all very well to say that women's place in the home, but modern civilization has taken all these pleasant and profitable activities out of the home where the women have looked after them and handled them and they've handed them over to big industry to be directed and organized by men at the hand of large factories. Even the dairy maid in her simple bonnet has gone to be replaced by a male mechanic in charge of a mechanical milking plant. <laughs> wow so right so she's like the, the nature of the home has been changed by the industrial revolution so so and, and, and how, how do we wisely move forward 
I think is, is the question that she's asking. And she's, I don't, I mean, well, she's, she's doing two of these too. She's poking at man because men are like a woman's job is in the home, but she's like, you have come in the home and (laughs) taken away the woman's job, right? right. Like if you want to argue about woman's job is in the home, granted. And this is why I I, want to keep some, some realities there. And that's true. But then you've gone and taken the women out of the home. And then for them to go and do those jobs, they have to go and do them underneath other men. And you're fine with it. You know what I mean? Like, and, and you want to, you're fine with taking that away from them. So then now what is the home? And and it's something that, you know, I think we got to come to terms with in some sense, <laughs> right? Because yeah. no, we, we definitely do. So, so, so then we have to, when we say a woman's job is a home, well, okay, how does she then take care of that home if you keep taking certain things away from her that she needs to cultivate what a home is? Right. So, you know, the, so, and I think, you know, one of the things she's pointing to is the fact that, you know, 200 years, 300 years ago, the, the jobs that were in the home um, were, Industrious. She medieval times is exactly right. what she's in, pointing to. Yeah. Indus- she's talking about in, you're talking about industry Industries. at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Industry has been shifted outside the home by the mechanization of of most of the industries that were once a part of the home. Which is not and totally so now, bad. <laughs> no, it's not totally bad at all, right? It's a it's a gift, it's a blessing. Right. But to to then say um what so a woman's job is in the home and so she should just sit around all day. And that's actually, so here's one of the things that's really interesting about the feminism, especially of the fifties and the sixties is the ideal, the ideal woman at that point was somebody was, did become a woman that sat around just pining and waiting for her husband to get home. Right. right? Her kids were at school and what did she do? Well, just sat around looking pretty, waiting for her husband to get home. Well, that's not the biblical. That's not the biblical in du- Proverbs thirty-one woman. No, she's right? industrial. Who's yeah. incredibly industrious? Yeah. Uh, who's who's transforming the any, anything she touches? She transforms um, because of her industriousness. And so uh, the the fight for the fight against feminism just it should not be a desire to return to the fifties, a desire to return to the sixties, a desire, you know, um, the, it, it, it needs to be a desire to honor women and figure out what feminine honor looks like. What does it look like to honor my wife better? What does it look like to honor my daughters better? And not, not, not just women as a idealized category, the particular women in your life, that's what it needs to look like. How do I show honor to this wonderful woman that God has given me? Okay, and I want to be a little more specific, though, too. Is it possible that the man's mission um, isn't robust enough if if those things have tilted? Right. So now, you know, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that whatever she's signing up underneath is far too most man's mission is far too minuscule for the type of being that she is, the type of human that she is. And so they don't go ahead. But because we don't, we're not getting our mission from Genesis. This is one of the things really interesting about the, during the 
abolitionist movement uh, the, uh, leading up to uh, the Civil War is most of the um, optimistic eschatology went with the abolitionists mm. out, but it left the church behind. So the, the, um, the, the um, institutional church was actually dropping up its optimistic eschatology and the, the groups that had the optimistic optimistic eschatology were the non-institutionalists. So the people starting seminaries, starting uh, extra outside the church organizations, um, the abolitionist movements were very optimistic, um, you know, post-millennial type of groups. And the, the, uh, the church that was um, institutional was leaving was basically we're not optimistic in our eschatology. It's our job to hold down the fort, hold society together. Just in the meantime, until Jesus comes back versus the very optimistic. Well, no, it's our job to actually transform the world to become more the um, more like the, the garden that God gave us in the beginning. Right. So, um, but we have dropped the mission of God, which is, you know, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion over the whole earth, right? And said as as our mission. So we can't do, a, a man can't do the be fruitful and multiply on his own, right? But we've tended to, to only think that the the mission given by God is the dominion part. And a, a woman stays at home and is outside of the mission that God has given us, right? The mission is our job, our work, right? Well, the mission is actually the kids, the family, the home, the transformation of that and the work. And it's a big mission that nobody, you can't do it on your own. You need um, a a whole family working on it together to accomplish it because it's too big of a mission for a person to accomplish by themselves. I keep, I keep coming back to this because I think that for me, I see so many people who think that they have the answer to the problems out there in the world and they have good talking points, but they can't be effective because they don't understand that all the problems are really inside of how we understand our family. And so I'm realizing more and more, just the more that we talk, that my family is understanding, governing, leading, loving, discipling, um, Bringing joy into my family is the most effective thing that I could ultimately do in the current situation that we're in. And understanding the ontological and economic realities of that and the people that God has close to me is far more important than understanding what critical race theory is and does. It's far more. The education of my children is far more important than arguing whether or not certain laws in Florida should be given teachers to talk about sex and what ages and levels of sex. Like that's insane. That's insane. Yeah. I don't even know why we're having that conversation. It just shows that the, we've, we've forgotten about the thing that actually mil- make uh, talking about Disney. Forget Disney. We, the fact that we're arguing with Disney means that we've forgotten who makes and builds and forms culture. Right. We do. And we've abdicated all those responsibilities onto somebody else because uh, it's it's it, 
we're posting we're post enlightenment, right? And so the we we we've forgotten the very humanity of or the the the, the very foundations of what a home is. I mean, you know, we were talking to Jeff Schaefer this past week, and Jeff, it, if anybody is looking for probably one of the best shows we've ever done in cross politics, that's one of them. Um, Jeff Schaefer was arguing that back in the twenties, starting back in the early twenties, um, all the way up to a Burgerfeld, the, the obliteration of ba- the first thing he says is the fact that couples did not have to be fruitful. The fact that they could choose to have birth control was kind of the marker really in law that obliterated the responsibility of mothers and fathers, right? They could choose whether or not to, you know, be parents. Um, And so if she got pregnant, (laughs) then, oh, yeah, we don't want a kid. And so when we we introduced birth control into the situation, it was intended – by the liberals particularly to start chipping away at the very foundations of what a man and a woman are and then what a mother and a father are and then what children are and everything that happened from then on out becomes a little more clear of what they're trying to do to the point that you know they obliterate the categories of motherhood and the state becomes the one responsible then for for your children they're the ones responsible they're the ones in charge you can choose whether or not to be uh you can choose whether or not to follow in the very metaphysical structure that God has made you. God has made you a woman to become a mother, and you can choose now on whether or not you're God and say, I don't ever want to be a mother. And you can choose that by taking somebody else's life. And so that never has to fall in flow with you. And so we've obliterated these categories of the family. Like you said earlier, we've chopped them up, and we have been trying to put them together like a Frankenstein to make it work. So that we can still have the blessings of God without the obedience to God, and right, or we, but we've even redefined what blessings we want. Right? Well, I, like, yeah, I would even say that yeah. we want some sort of we uh, 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 a well, well, Frankenstein. We want some sort of flawed view of human flourishing, right? That's what we say, but but right. it's not just the seculars that have done that, though. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and. And I think what's hard, we, we were talking about this uh, this week as well, is that laws are all downstream from worship, mm. right? The, the laws, so the, the laws are a marker on something that has gone wrong, but they aren't themselves the thing that has gone wrong. They're the, the marking of it, right? The thing yes. that went wrong was actually that we didn't want the fruitfulness anymore, right? We no longer wanted the, the, uh, we, we, we began defining fruitfulness, um, in a way different than Mm. God, right? We wanted to define it in terms of power and economics and rather than in terms of, you know, children are the fruit of the womb, right? They're a blessing, but then you've also got the, the fruitfulness descriptions in Colossians, the fruitfulness descriptions in Galatians, right? The fruit of the spirit. Um, we, we wanted to be able to bite and devour one another and then call it fruitfulness, mm. right? As a society, we didn't want to ha- have to serve our neighbors, protect the defenseless, protect the orphan, protect the widow. We wanted to be able to, to say, well, we, we want to call this fruitfulness, but then it, have it be actually biting and devouring one another, right? Because, 
you know, Galatians says, be careful lest you bite and devour one another. Right? And then it goes on to describe basically modern society, right? Galatians four, uh, adultery, lying, um, power mongering, uh, all, all of these things. And then he says, instead, produce the fruit of the spirit. Well, what do you do with fruit? You feed one another on it, right? He says you mm. either are eating one another, biting and devouring one another, yeah. or you're feeding feeding one another, right? Those are the options. We're like, well, we would like to bite and devour one another, but can we just call it fruitfulness? I think that's what we'll do, right? And then the laws come in and say, you are allowed to call it fruitfulness and but actually it's biting and devouring one another right so we don't we it's not as if what we need is new laws right what we need is the fruit of the spirit right what we need is fruitfulness to be restored um and but we're too intent i think on our on oh i I don't know. We've bought in to so many of so much of the enlightenment that it's really, we we need revival. (laughs) No, we have to get back to the very structures of what we're talking about, the very structures of a man and a woman and humanity, Mm -hmm. because I think that we're talking about these, 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 um, these nouns without actually defining them very well. Right. And so everybody's, go ahead. After my, so after my first book, uh, my, the second book that I was working on before I, I never finished it um, because I got sick, but it was just called man and woman. Right. That was, that was the, and I had just worked on it. Cause I was like, that is the thing. I mean, that's the thing that's broken, right? We, and this was what 2000, what, what was it? 2009, 2010 that I was mm. working on that. Um, and it's only gotten worse. So, um, and I will hopefully at some point want to finish it, but it's just the whole question of why did God make man and woman? What did God make when he made man and woman? Why did he make man and woman? And what is our mission as men and women? What, what is the, what did God put us here for? Um, it's it's such a fundamental question that I think we just think we've answered it because we're using the words, but this is this is we haven't yet. Well, and here's why I I know um, I've gotten some emails about people, you know, um, criticizing me for criticizing folks like John MacArthur and others who have been very high level preaching of the gospel. Right. They've been very high level. And um, and I and I'm not arguing that at all. I I think I agree. They have been. My argument has been that the preaching of the gospel, though, is total in reminding people that God has made them to live in this world and engage in the um, the, that dominion in this planet and with this dirt, with that wife, with those kids for the expanding of the garden to this end. Right. And when I think, go ahead, this, this, I think this is what you see in that abolitionist church split, right? Was the, the institutional church was still preaching the gospel. Right. Right. But it it was a gospel that quit hitting, touching down on earth. And it ended up, it, it ended up splitting the church because they were looking over at the, 
at the slave ships coming in and saying, does the gospel touch down there? Does the gospel touch down there? And when the institutional church said no, um, the, the, it, it erupted a, a split in the church that we still haven't seen the healing of, right? Well, well, We're still that's the experiencing that split. Mm-hmm. The, the, the people have to understand the gospel hasn't come to get you out of here. <laughs> right. Remember when we talked about what, what's a heresy? Well, it's something that splits the church. Right. So we've got a church split. Where do we, we know. So we know that there's a heresy somewhere and you got to back your way into what it is. It's Gnosticism. More. So what's next? And in America, it happened right before the Civil War. That's how long ago the church split was in my in my understanding. You know, before the Civil War, what what what, what was that moment? I think it was the the splitting out of all of the abolitionists. Okay. From okay. the from the actual um uh from the institution. So, so right, you we're, get, we're you get a whole new series of non ecclesiastical institutions that are Christian. This had to be going on. You know, we might have to go through Alec de Tocqueville because he's he's probably it's probably really you know we don't want to talk about this, but it's probably even leading up to that is opening the door on how we're understanding slavery and dealing with slavery in America. Right. Like, because Mm -hmm. that's opening. We're having a human conversation. The gospel is, you know, we're having (laughs) a revival breakout. We still have sins we're dealing with, you know, and there's a progression of time that God deals with societies over time. Looking through history. This is why I guess some of the arguments abolitionists for me is like in throughout history, you see God throughout time working with his people and sanctifying them. And so it isn't just like, you know, even, even when you, you, you know, you got Kings or leaders in the Bible who are casting out homosexuality, they're doing it in a way that still is in trajectory with a direction. And it isn't in a finalized position of what it should be, but it's going the right way. Right. And, and moving, moving toward moving time and space and, and history with truth, um, just like a garden. Right. It, it takes time and it builds up over time. Yeah. And it's like it's nothing's just like that. Um, you become like that. And then you work out that that's being worked in. Right. Um, right. Right. And so e- even the process is anyway, we, we got to end. But I just if there's one thing like I want to leave with and I don't want to forget at all is. We need to spend our time as much as we can understanding just how foundation, how foundational the family really is. And if you get that wrong, if you get that broken, if you don't have that right or something else is broken up here, you have to go back and say, oh, I'm not understanding the family properly because everything really is flowing out of that in how we understand human beings and how they operate and 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 got and the of course the scriptures are influencing all that but kind of the testing ground of all of that has to be the testing ground the development ground of that is a family you look at the right. family you look at the structure of how we work with individuals and love individuals understand those different realities ontological and economic realities and love each other through that if you don't have those foundations in place, you're really going to make some massive mistakes as it relates to sex, as it relates to economics, as it relates to race, like we're making right now because we have so obliterated or have a lack of understanding of the family itself. 
Right. And what you end up with is then you go, you, you try and find the biggest, highest authority you can and say, please come fix this with your coercive power. Right. Which is what's, which is what happens now is, you know, you have everybody trying to get solved at the federal government level when really, you know, most of our problems can be solved by just turning it to the people that are right around us and getting into fellowship. You know, it's so funny. You look at black culture, you know, everybody wants to look at black culture for one thing, but if you look at it for other, there hasn't been a, a more um, effective truth than that right there. When black culture has looked in on itself as a family, individual families looking in on themselves saying, okay, how do we produce and love and give as a family to others? You see flourishing expand massively when there yep. shouldn't be any flourishing. The laws don't allow for it. The culture doesn't allow for it. And then flourishing happens. Right. I mean, you look at the way Brooklyn influenced the entire world under Reaganism. <laughs> and you talk to him at the time. You know, at the time, they hate Reagan. They're complaining about Reaganism. They're complaining about all of it. And look at how oppressed we are and you know and um and the crack the, i mean the, the crack epidemic that the cia um caused preach on it did to them right they all that was terrible terrible yep. at the same time who won right right now everybody you know you, you i mean who does you just, i don't know if you follow the b-boy internationals at all but south korea i see that yeah is (laughs) south korea is is perfecting an art developed and created in brooklyn in the late 70s and the early 80s right and um the uh the and they're they're competing against japan and australia and india right you've got so who who really france won in the long run right france yeah you've um You've got this. You've you've got hip hop and and b boying and and uh, the artwork that they're just putting on the sides of their trains at the time is now basically the universal artwork throughout the world. Um, you sent me that. Uh, I was it a uh, I can't remember. It was a there's the was it a Japanese group that was dancing. Oh yeah, um, yeah. They, they sent me it was incredible, and then you got. Um, I mean, it's just like Brooklyn from the early eighties was a fountainhead of art, beauty, dance, music, poetry that influenced the world. They didn't have the economics. It it wasn't through economics. They didn't have the money. They didn't have any of that. Um, What they had was a community that came together um, and, created art and poetry and music and dance um, and basically turned their situation into one that everybody now wishes they had. (laughs) Well, now we're trying to use it. We see it as a condo and now we're trying to use it ourselves to figure out how we could, you know, communicate through those, those means, you know, but that, that comes out of, this is what I think I don't want to see that comes out of a certain type of um, cultural displacement that you have to be comfortable with. Right. Like that's that's the thing that like are uncomfortable with, but not complaining where you take it and you say, I'm going to turn this into the hottest spot, even though like that's 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 that kind of 
you say, oh, you you put us in the back of the bus. Well, here you're going to want to be back here with us soon. Yeah, it's, it's just into that part. That's the summer of soul. That documentary <sighs> that one Oscar. That's what it shows. Right. It's so sad that that was where stuff with Will Smith and Chris Rock happened was right before that because it should have been just celebrating that Oscar. That Oscar is well deserved. That is one of the few times when I'm like, hey, I agree with the Academy. Uh, they that's actually weird. did a good job. <laughs> you know, that the um yeah, that's that that's not asking for permission either, right? Like that's just Yeah. Yeah, that that's a well we'll have to talk about that another time.